I think the, the scripture that uh, Jerome read for us, it's a good introduction. Uh, in it's Paul's prayer, his desire for us to have this knowledge and understanding of the Lord and what the Lord has done for us. Um, he, and he concludes that with stating that, that God has put Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Lord willing, uh, in, in the world that we live in today, I think this, Lord willing, this, this lesson is more relevant uh, with everything that we see and hear in the world today. Um, it's something that I wish I had heard when I was younger. Uh, it, it hopefully is something that, that I wish I had seen and understood at a younger age to appreciate um, God's wisdom and his power and how he has designed and brought everything about. Um, <clears throat> I want us to consider, and like I say, if you would turn over to Ephesians 5, we want to start there in verse 22. I want to read this passage to start with. And I want us to consider with this passage, and I'm going to try as I, I read it, to emphasize the things that I believe are stated here, but um, draw that make the connections that I believe the Lord wants us to see. And that is how that the relationship between husband and wife in marriage is modeled after the relationship between God and his people. Um, I heard a preacher several within the past few months as he was presenting his sermon said that the Bible is the greatest love story ever told. And that's what I hope we see and under, come to understand today. So Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 22. His wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife even as emphasis Christ is the head of the church his body, just as we read in chapter 1, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, that she, excuse me, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one, become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a prof mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in this, yes, Paul is describing the relationship between husband and wife, but he's saying the husband and wife relationship is supposed to be based upon what we see between Christ and the church, the spiritual relationship. The, the husband-wife relationship is to be a type or a shadow 
excuse me, a shadow of the type of spiritual truth that exists in Christ and the church. What I want us to do is, first of all, let's go back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And I want us to think about how this relationship, not just Christ and the church, but God's relationship with, with his people throughout time uh, has foreshadowed um, this spiritual truth. Um, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, we st- it starts out with about the creation of woman. It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, verse 24, as Paul quoted in Ephesians 5. So in in the way that God created woman, he took a small piece of man, separated that from him, created woman, and then brought her back to the man for them to be one, if you will. Well, how did God create man? Genesis 2 and verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature or a living being or a living soul, depending upon what translation you may have. Now, what's that mean? And and how how do we make the connections there? A passage from Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, and this is referring to death. But uh, there it says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The Spirit came from God. That's how he formed Adam. He formed him with the dirt, the, the dust of the ground, and then he took a part, if you will, of his Spirit and created man as a separate being. Now, I think, and I want us to think about why God did this. I, I want to, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. He did this so that he might bring us back to him, just as when he created man and then woman, it was to bring the woman back to the man. God created us as human beings, as separate beings, that ultimately he will bring us back to him. We see this again throughout the scriptures. First of all, in the Old Testament, I want to take a look there. In the book of Exodus, after freeing the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And there, in Exodus 19 and verse 3, it's recorded this, says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And that you may become, t- and that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God told Moses, you know, I have brought you to myself at Mount Sinai, that you might be a treasured possession of mine, to make you mine. Ezekiel has a description of the same time frame in Exodus. Ezekiel refers to it in Ezekiel 16 and verse 8. Um, says, when I passed by you again and saw you, the Lord speaking, behold, you were at an age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Talking to or about the children of Israel. So a quick overview then of, of Old Testament history. So what happened from the time that God brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery to himself? Well, first of all, the children of Israel murmured and they complained, we don't have food, we don't have water, you brought us out here to die, but God's still patient with them. At Mount Sinai, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. The people come to Aaron, they say, we don't know what happened to Moses. So... Aaron makes the golden calf, and they start worshiping the the calf, saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. But Moses intervenes, intervenes so God doesn't destroy them. God has mercy. In their continued travels to the promised land, they they come up to the, the edge of the promised land. They send in the spies and everything. They don't have the faith to go in. Only Joshua and Caleb say, yeah, we can go in and take the land. The ten other spies say, no, we can't do this. And they threatened to kill Moses and return to Egypt. Because of that, that generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, dies in the wilderness. They never see the promised land. God brings their children into the promised land um, later. Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan, but they fail to uh, destroy and drive out all the nations who were there before them as the Lord commanded. And then Joshua dies. And then we see the book of Judges. Um, in Judges 13, the first part of that verse, verse 1, says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in Judges 21, 25, it describes Israel in those days. It said, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this was, this was the spiritual situation in Israel, but God didn't abandon them. He didn't destroy the nation. He was still merciful. He was still patient. And when they would cry out, even during this period of judges, he would send a deliverer to them. He would send someone to rescue them. And then finally, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asks for a king. God gives them a king. And as a united nation, of one nation of Israel, they had Saul, David, and Solomon as kings. But then when Solomon was an old elderly man, uh, elderly king in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, it says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. 
Because of this, God divided the kingdom and took ten tribes from Solomon, gave them to, uh, uh, took them from his Solomon's son Rehoboam, gave them to Jeroboam, and so then we had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which continued under the descendants of David and Solomon and so forth. So Jeroboam in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, he, the first thing he does is he set up idol, sets up idols in Dan and Bethel, golden calves for them to worship so they don't, they don't have to go back to Jerusalem because he's afraid if they return back to Jerusalem, they'll reunite the kingdom. So Jeroboam teaches them to be sinful. From that point on, Israel never has a good king, never has a godly king. They go further and further into idolatry, worshiping the idols of the, the people of the nations around them, particularly Baal. And even the nation of Israel, that, or excuse me, the, the nation of Judah, from that point on, it has some good kings, some bad kings. But they were never truly faithful to God. And throughout their history, both Israel and Judah at different times, when times got tough, they had another nation perhaps that was threatening them. Who did they turn to? They turned to other nations around them. They didn't turn to God. They turned to other nations. Again, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 16, uh, Ezekiel, when he's writing, it's later in the Old Testament. The nation of the northern nation of Israel has already been taken into captivity. Um, matter of fact, the, the kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity because Ezekiel's in captivity with them when he writes this. But this is God's judgment more so against Jerusalem in this context in, in Ezekiel 16. But in chapter 16, verse 26, 28, and 29, he says that they went after the they went after Egypt, they went after Assyria and and Chaldea or Babylon, they put their faith in those nations. God describes it in those verses as harlotry or whoredom. They, if you will, committed adultery with these other nations because they didn't put their faith and trust in God. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, verse 32, God describes it this way. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. So God's making this connection between his relationship and, and with his people and marriage, um, the marriage relationship. So how did God deal with the infidelity of his people under the Old Covenant? First, with regard to the nation of Israel, it's recorded in Isaiah 50 and verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. And then in, uh, so that, that's Israel being given, quote, a certificate of divorce for their infidelity. Then in Jeremiah chapter 3, in verse 1, God asks that if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Then also in that same chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithful, faithless one? 
Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faith, faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. She too went and played the whore, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. So through these prophets, God describes his judgment against Israel as having given her a certificate of divorce. Why? Because she had been unfaithful to him. He did this to both Israel and Judah by sending them Israel, sending Israel in exile to Assyria and later sending Judah in exile to Babylon. He put them away from him. But despite all this, one of the good things about the prophets um, is that God always gives a sense of hope within the prophets. Um, in the Old Testament, um, God described this relationship between he and his people in the book of Hosea. Uh, in Hosea 1, through, up through verse 2 and verse 13, he describes what we've already read about their adulterous, their infidelity to him. But then in Hosea 2, 14 through the end of chapter 3, which is only five verses long, he, gives, he, he changes his tune, he gives hope to them. Um, I believe in this context He's referring more to spiritual Israel in the future. In Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, And the Lord said to me, again talking to Hosea, um, using Hosea's relationship with his wife as a parallel with the Lord in Israel. says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, lethic of barley. I think it's a homer and a, homer and a half of barley. Don't hold me to that, maybe in a different translation. Um, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another name, man so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Again, I think that's prophetic looking at the New Testament. Um, uh, looking prophetically at God buying mankind back, if you will, through the blood of Jesus. Back up, I want to read two verses from Hosea chapter 2 because I think this expresses it uh, much more deeply. In Hosea 2 verses 19 and 20, he says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God's promising to bring them back. 
And again, I think this is referring to spiritual Israel in the New Testament and what he would do through Christ. <clears throat> so then thinking about, about the New Testament, then what do we see in the New Testament? I want to take a little time reading a, a lengthy passage here from Matthew 21, if you want to turn there with me, um, beginning in the first verse there. Yeah. There's so much going on here. There's so much in this passage. God is, is revealing the fulfillment of his promises in so many different ways here. In Matthew 21, he, he, it starts out, he sends the two disciples to go get the donkey to bring to him, and then we see the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So then, um, chapter 21, verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And we entered, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now one, in verse 13, what Jesus says to them, he's quoting from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. If you go back to Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah, through the Lord, the Lord is prophesying through Jeremiah his judgment against Judah at the time because he says the same thing. He, he's saying, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. And in Jeremiah, in that context, he says, and I've seen it with my own eyes, which is fulfilled in, in Christ here right now. Christ is seeing it with his own eyes, as the prophet Jeremiah stated, was coming from God. So, we've had the triumphal entry. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's made this accusation against them, which exposes their hypocrisy by quoting Jeremiah. Then verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple... Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And he said to them, Did you hear, uh, Do you hear the, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 8 when he answers them. Psalm 8 and verse 2. <clears throat> this is from the New King James Version says, out of the mouth of babes and nurse, nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Keep that in mind. This is the verse Jesus is quoting from. That's the context he's quoting from. So then, <clears throat> this is going on. I want to jump, jump over to John chapter 12. This is the same time frame in John chapter 12, this is following the triumphal entry. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, i.e. Gentiles. These are foreigners. 
They've gone up to the feast, more than likely proselytes. John 12, 21, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So you've got foreigners, Gentiles, who are coming and asking to see Jesus at a time when scribes and Pharisees are plotting to kill him, if you will. John 12, 23, And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is saying, it's time. He goes on, verse, um, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So I wanted to spend time with that context because from the time of the triumphal entry, what do we have? The triumphal entry, the people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Salvation to the son of David. They're crying out for help. They're crying out for salvation. Jesus in this context, again from where he quoted from Jeremiah, is rebuking the sin and the hypocrisy that's going on in the temple. He in the temple demonstrated his power to heal. He said, Jesus said, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when Jesus said, Father, glorify your name, the voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He also said that this is a pronouncement of judgment upon the world. And he's saying that at this time, the ruler of the world will be cast out. Now consider that in the context that when the uh, scribes and Pharisees questioned him, asking him if he heard what the children were saying when they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The scribes and the Pharisees said, you know, don't you hear what they're saying? And he said, yeah. And he said, haven't you heard? 
It said that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, he quotes from Psalm 8 and verse 2, which again, Psalm 8 and verse 2 says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Why? Because Jesus said, now is the ruler of this world cast out. In the New Testament, the Hebrew writer also quotes from Psalm 8, verses uh, 4 through 6. He quotes this in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8. Then in Hebrews 2 and verse 9, the latter part of that verse, the Hebrew writer states that by the grace of God, he, referring to Jesus, might taste death for everyone. And then later in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So it's in that context Jesus has come through the triumphal entry. He's shown the hypocrisy that's going on in the temple. He said that the judgment's come into the world. The ruler of this world's going to be cast out. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people unto me. You see the parallel between that and what God did for Israel, bringing them out of Egyptian bondage? In Exodus 19, he says, I have brought you to myself that you might be my treasured possession? Jesus is telling him, I'm here to deliver you. I'm here to bring you to myself. I'm here to claim you as my people. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we see Jesus leading up to what we read about then in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same ways husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. But what we share in this relationship with Christ as part of his kingdom, of his church, of his body right now, is only a foreshadowing of the relationship that we'll have with the Lord in eternity. Because John writes or records in Revelation 19 verse 6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. 
So what God started in Genesis 1 when he created man and he took of his spirit and he put his spirit in the dust of the earth that man might become a living being, he is bringing to fruition in revelation in heaven when he comes back to bring us back to him, to be one with him in eternity. And the dowry that was paid was the body and the blood of Jesus. I want the emphasis to be on the spiritual relationship here. But I also wanted us to see that God's laws concerning marriage, uh, moral purity, and divorce parallel his relationship with his people. They were designed and made to model the spiritual relationship so that the physical relationship could also point people to the spiritual relationship. The two are intertwined. We've already talked about this and read it from Ephesians chapter 5. But think about it also in the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I know we've studied this recently on Tuesday. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Remember what it said he did for us in Ephesians 5? What he did for the church? He gave himself for her that he might present her to himself without spot and without blemish, pure. He goes on and says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meat for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. On this passage, again, backing up, he says, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes what? One spirit with him. He brings us back to him to be one spirit with him. And he puts that in in the uh, context of avoiding sexual immorality. But he also, within that context, again refers back to Genesis 2, and the two became one flesh. So we see all those parallels. He also brings in there that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, if we go to other passages, if we go to Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit's been given to us as an earnest, as a down payment of what? 
of what we're going to have in heaven. And Peter on the day of Pentecost said, you know, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is also, if you will, a portion of that dowry which has been given to us of the promise that's yet to come. Some other passages to consider with regard to why God's laws regarding uh, moral purity and marriage and so forth matter. I want to compare two passages. For, uh, first of all, Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I want to compare that with Romans 13. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11, says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, what I want us to compare, <clears throat> this is something a brother shared uh, years ago that I heard. <clears throat> in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, where it says marriage is to be held in honor, and the marriage bed undefiled, where it translates marriage bed, is the same word that in Romans 13, 13 is translated sexual immorality. It's the same Greek word. But in marriage, it's undefiled. In marriage, it's pure. In Romans 13, it's sin. Same thing. What makes it sin in one context and not in the other? Because the context of marriage is the context in which God intended for it to be fulfilled. So why is that? I want you to think about some things. We already talked about how God created woman. He took this little bitty part of man, created woman, brought her back to the man to be one with man. This is his wife. God created man by taking this part of himself, his spirit, and to bring it back to himself. In this physical relationship that is pure within marriage, when you have a man and woman come together, God, can, God has designed it such that you take this little tiny physical piece of man and this little tiny physical piece of woman and they come together and they form a new living soul. Just like God created man. Just like God created woman. I want you to think about that in the context of what the Lord reveals through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 13, he says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what is the one, one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his, uh, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Again, he's tying these physical relationships together, but he says within that context, it's because God wants godly offspring. He wants this coming together as one to create another living soul to be within the context that parallels the relationship between Christ and the church, between God and his people. He wants it to be within the marriage relationship because that's where he wants us to learn about him, to learn about what true love means. That's why outside of the context of marriage, sexual activity is wrong. It's immoral. God didn't design it that way. He designed it in a specific way for a specific purpose, and that is to point us to him and our relationship with him. I also want you to consider or give some thought to and we're not going to read all the passages. We, we could spend a whole series of lessons on, on in the New Testament on the New Testament teaching regarding marriage and divorce and such things. One, one passage I want to read, Romans chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. And I realize this is in a different context, but again, he's using it to show a spiritual truth. He says, For a married woman who is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Uh, again, all these are ESV translations. So, And then when Jesus has been teaching, whenever Jesus taught in the Gospels on marriage and divorce, when, whenever he was questioned primarily, um, he always goes back to Genesis. Well, almost always. He didn't in, in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, but um, in Matthew 19 and in Mark's account, he goes back to the beginning. But in all those, the only exception that Jesus gives for allowing a divorce to ever take place is based upon sexual morality. And the, I want you to think about that because that parallels why he gave Israel and Judah a certificate of divorce under the Old Covenant. There's an exact parallel. Now, again, I'm not going into details on that, but I think that's why God's teaching on these other things matter. It's because he wants us to understand what our relationship to him should be. Not because he's just trying to regulate our behavior here. He's trying to point us to him. One thing to think about, side note, that was the only reason that Jesus said he would permit or allow a divorce. And I say allow, he did not command a divorce, even in that situation. And now why do I say that? Number one, he didn't command it. But look at his dealings with Israel and Judah under the Old Testament. How long did it take before God gave those nations a certificate of divorce. It wasn't the first time that nation was disobedient. It wasn't the first time that nation rebelled against him. It was after centuries of God's long-suffering and patience 
before he put them away and sent them away. So one last passage I want to share with you and, and a few uh, closing thoughts. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. And again, th this is with, uh, also within that last week of Jesus' life on the earth before his crucifixion. Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bring, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I think Jesus is speaking this parable, I think primarily concerning those who had rejected God. Those who had mistreated and killed the prophets in the Old Testament. And those who did not believe Jesus and were plotting on killing Jesus, even at this time. But I want you to think about what we read in Revelation 19, about the wedding of the Lamb, and about his bride. The king is planning a wedding for his son, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. The invitation is not to come as a guest. It is a call to be his bride. Each one of us, regardless of our status, whether we're single or whether we're married, whether we're perhaps divorced, whether we're male or female, need to view Christ as our bridegroom and ourselves both individually and collectively as the church as his bride. In recent years, I've, I've heard, you know, come up in different situations. You, you have Families, maybe there's someone who finds themselves as a single parent trying to raise kids, trying to take care of things. They need to look at Christ as their bridegroom. Again, even if we're married, we should be looking to Christ as our bridegroom because of what he's done for us. I recently had an opportunity to meet with and, and sit down and talk with a brother a brother in Christ whose wife committed adultery and left him, who is now trying to do whatever he can for his children and his family, what remains of his family, because he cares for their souls. And in our discussion, he said, you know, 
part of what he had to learn himself was he had to learn to put Christ first, even before pleasing his wife. He couldn't look at pleasing her. He had to look at pleasing the Lord. That's what will get us through those difficult times, is when we see Christ as the bridegroom and ourselves, ourselves as his bride. Because even if I'm a man, I don't have any doubts about that in the current world we live in. Even as a man, if I'm a Christian, I'm a part of his body. I'm a part of his church. So what's my role? My role is to be subject to him and him alone because of what he's done. He's bought me. He's cleansed me. He's purified me. No one else has done that. So, have you allowed him to purify you? Have you allowed him to sanctify you through his blood to draw you to himself? That he might present you to himself spotless and without blemish? And if you have, have you remained faithful to him? Or have you put your faith and your trust in yourself or in others or in other things in this world instead of him? Wherever you find yourself, regardless of where you find yourself, let us first of all pray for each other in this. And if you have a need that can be addressed, then let us address it uh, together today as we stand and we sing.